you can look over the next page of our worship folder to our passage this morning, and you might find this a little bit humorous. The last time this passage was preached at Red Mountain Church, it was way back when founding uh, pastor Steve Malone was here, and the title of his sermon was The Beautiful and Hilarious Mission of God. And I have no idea what that means. But um, I find that a little bit humorous and wish I got the joke a little bit more than I do. Um, let me just remind us what, where we are, what we're doing, is we're in the middle of our vision series. And if you would like to, so if you look at the front of the worship folder, the very front page, then we have this vision and values section right here. And this is really an outline of what this sermon series is going to be. So if you look under the Our Vision section, last week we preached on looking at Exodus chapter 19, uh, looking at the idea of pursuing renewal and healing as the why we exist. And what we found there is that we looked at the, the, the very wonderful calling of how God's people are a people redeemed, but that they have also been redeemed for a purpose, that they have been made into a whole kingdom of priests who are to um, represent the nations and the behalf of God and God to the nations as a way of, if we use that through New Testament language, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to all of those who are around us as Christ is our great high priest. So that was last week, and we saw that this is an impossible task on our own, and that it is everything, every part of it centers on Jesus. But now we are moving into the second part where we are looking at the, at the question, who? If that is why we are here, why we exist, then who are we here to serve? And what you see the phrase here is we are here to serve for all the pieces, the people and places of Birmingham, which we will unpack. And this is a really important question. Um, and before I read it, let me just kind of set it up here that maybe it's because I'm yearning for the cold weather, but this reminded me of It's a Wonderful Life, which we used to watch every single Christmas growing up until it was practically memorized. But if there's a scene in there where Jimmy Stewart has just gotten married and they have this, this bit of money to go away um, on their honeymoon and have a great time, but before they're about to leave, then they notice there's a bank run. And that's Jimmy Stewart works for a bank, um, giving out loans for houses, and that's an important part of the community as a whole um, of how people are housed in that community. So as they stop the honeymoon, they go in, and as a great gift, they offer up their own sum of money for their honeymoon to satisfy the people who are there on the bank run to give them what they need um, so that they both they can flourish and the community can flourish. But the thing that stood out to me is there are two different responses of people um, who are there. The first guy comes up and he takes this gift and, you know, Jimmy Stewart is asking, how much do you really need to take um, um, just to get you by until we can come up with another solution? And he won't hear anything of taking anything less than everything that he is owed because to him, this gift was all about him. It stopped with him, and that is the whole purpose of why this gift was given, so that he would benefit, and he would be lacking in nothing, and he could go away um, with everything he needs. 
But then there are also other responses. And the other people, you know, the Lex little lady that comes up, then she asks for this very small sum and says that, you know, if I can just have this, I'll be able to thrive. And then the community will be able to thrive as this bank, um, this bank is able to stay in business as well. And those responses, they just illustrate this, this aspect. And the illustration breaks down in the fact that Jesus is not lacking in anything. Uh, he has a full store of all the riches um, possible in heaven and on earth that has been given to his people. However, one of the ways we often think about what he has done for us is to take the money and run. That it has been given to us, it is just about me. This is about me getting what I need, being safe, being free from my shame, whatever, without any consideration that there might there is a bigger story here of what is going on. Um, and that's what we want to talk about today. So we are. this is an important question. Who are we called to serve? Is this just something that is about us? Um, or is there a wider implication to this? So let's go to the passage. I'll read it, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. This is God's word. So when they had come together, they, I mean the disciples, asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And he said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, use your word here to work in us. Give us a clear vision of your kingdom, and particularly of you as the king, and that you would enlighten us into how we fit in that kingdom, so that we would be able to enjoy even our own worship of you as our king, but that that would not stop as that, would stop with us, but that the impact of that on us would spread and it would continue to grow even as far as the ends of the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the plan for this morning. We looked at the, the priestly language last time of the kingdom of priests, and we're going to switch metaphors this time and look at the idea of kingship. And so the three points here, we're, we're going to look at the king, who is the king, two, who are his subjects, and then three, his influence. And that is how his influence comes about. And I might be a little curious, So, and I'll confess to you, one of the reasons this passage first stood out of my mind to talk about was this idea of when we think of who are we called to serve, well then, this is a classic passage. There's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. However, there is something else here in this passage that sets up the whole thing before we even talk about um, the mission of the people of God going forward and who they are called to serve. And that is the idea of Jesus being king. And this story starts way back in the beginning. We, I got to teach the 5th and 6th grade youth class last week. And one of the things we were talking about was the creation story and how it is so vital that we start the story in at the beginning, in the right place. Because if we don't start the story in the beginning, then nothing else is going to make sense um, from that point on. We don't really know what the story is about. 
And this, when we think in terms of creation, this story began with a king who is powerful over all things and a creation that he has made and that he wants to bless. And we are a part of that creation. But the important part about people is that we are not made in the same way that everybody else is made, but the human beings were actually given a very dignified and special task. And that is he made human beings to have dominion and to spread out through all of the earth. And that is another way of saying that is that the reason you and I were made was to join God in his rule over all things. That he created us and then brought us into his task of rule. That we get to share that with him. We get to undertake that work with him. We get to see what he is doing with him. It is a very wonderful and dignified task to spread the goodness of God out, um, to see his rule grow throughout his own kingdom. So that's the backstory. As that this is this is a story that starts with a king and a creation that God is zealous about picking up and not leaving that story behind, but continuing forward. And look what we see here. If you look at the passage, the first things look at the first thing that the disciples are concerned with. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And then Jesus said that it's not up to you to know this. Um that has been established by his own authority, but he sends them out. And then he, what might seem like a circumstance, he is raised into heaven and he sits down on the throne right next to God. And this is very important because when Christ was received back into heaven after his death, after his resurrection, then it means he was fully accepted by God and he was handed rule over the entire creation again. Rule of the whole creation was handed to Jesus. He was handed a kingdom so that there is not one corner of creation that is not owned by him, where he doesn't have the ultimate authority to influence or to call his own or to exercise his rule there. So this is this is actually this starts as a king as a kingdom passage. This is king kingly language of what this is set, uh, setting us up for um, of who Jesus is here. But there's two aspects of this that I want us to see about um, how God's rule actually works, and that is several theologians have talked about it in this way. Um, I was recently listening to something by a guy named Greg Perry who. I respect a lot and really enjoyed the way, the language that he was putting to it. And that's this. So a kingdom exists in two forms. In a nominal sense, like a noun, it's a place or a thing. And also in a verbal sense. That's like a verb. It is something that is going forward and that is always active. And so that, and we can say on the one hand, that as Christ goes up into heaven, he has a kingdom and that kingdom consists of all things. He is now the king on the throne. There is nothing that he doesn't own. But he is also, there's an active part of this through his people where his rule is being exerted throughout his kingdom and he is taking his influence and he is making it an active part of the kingdom that he already owns. And you know this in the way that um, you might have heard this illustration more than once, but if you think of a, a peace treaty at the end of a war, So when two armies are fighting over this territory and they sign a peace treaty, as soon as that thing is signed, like it's legally a done deal. 
that this territory is owned by this person. Both of these two fighting armies are owned by this king. They are all part of the same king now. Uh, It is done. But yet, there are still strongholds from the war that still exist. Word has to be carried out to all the corners. The prisoners of war have to be set free. And so we see there's both the kingdom as a thing that always exists, and there is also this activity of the rule of the king be exerted on all people in all places, of what he actually owns. And this is important to see as far as um, the kingdom of God. And so what we see here, especially as we think of what this idea of service, we're asking the question of who are we called to serve? We've got to back up and think of this idea of service and that what Jesus is saying here in our passage is he's talking about the kingdom, he's talking about the place that he owns as he has ascended onto heaven, uh, where he has his rule of goodness and mercy and justice and truth and all of that. But what does he call the people to do there? He takes his people, who have been stripped of the dignity of exerting rule over creation since the fall in the beginning, and he gives them that task again, but in a new way. And that he says, you are now my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That the people of God, now because of Christ and who he is as king, has called a people to go out and to announce as if the war is over. That all of this territory that we see that doesn't have any resemblance of the war being over, it is done. There is a new king on the throne. There is a new power who is um, active in the universe. It is a task of declaring the kingship of Christ and what he owns. So we have, a, in a creational sense, this, this coming back and this fixing of the original task of what human beings were made to do, however, through this new lens of Jesus. So that's the king, and that's the kingdom. That's the, that, that is the context of how we're thinking about this idea of who are we called to serve here in Birmingham. So we need to move on and ask this next question about his subjects. And that is, if Christ is the king, then let's unpack this a little bit and ask, you know, um, where is he king and who all are the people and the subjects of his kingdom? And thus he goes on and he gives this famous statement that... Um, when you go out, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this is a famous verse because this is actually the outline of the whole book of Acts. And that as you go through it, you see the gospel despite the mess of the church inside and all kinds of opposing forces outside. The church continues to grow, starting in Jerusalem, and then it goes out to the surrounding area in Judea and Samaria, and then it goes to the ends of the earth. But what does this involve? This means that if we just start here with Jerusalem, that Jerusalem is the center of worship um, in the place, and that Christ comes in and he announces himself that he is the new object of worship, that he is the new king on the throne in regard to Israel's worship. But it doesn't stay there. So with Judea and Samaria... These are two ethnic groups that have a similar history of existing in the same place 
and they really don't like each other. There is a lot of bad blood, and there have been a lot of things that have happened between these two people, these two people groups, that they despise one another. Um, Jews won't even go through Samaria. They stay completely apart. And so what Jesus says in, in doing this and saying that my kingdom goes even to, ju- to um, Judea and Samaria, and that it's not just about the people who know me and worship me, but it is also about this larger context of where the surrounding area is broken and there is conflict. There is ethnic division. There is a way, there is the situation on the ground is not reflecting the justice and the equity and the goodness of what God has intended. But he has called his people to even move into that, as risky as it is, to declare not in their own power that they have the sense to fix it, but that there is a new king in this place. That these two sides, who used to be enemies, are now part of the same kingdom. And there is the ability then of his people, it's like carrying a flag after war, to march in and put it down and say, there is a new king. That his rule exists in this place as well. He owns it. Um, He is in charge. And that it should reflect um, that reality as well. And then it goes to the ends of the earth after that. It doesn't start with the local place. It moves beyond it. Um, which we're going to talk about that here in the third point, which we're almost there. But that is the that is the situation in Acts. And I wonder if you've picked up on that there are some parallels between what's going on here and what is what we see here in our city of Birmingham. And that where God where God first starts is he comes in as the new king, the reformer of worship. That he is the new object of worship, not anything else. But He also, we have our own reality of even ethnic division in our city that our city is famous for. If you mention Birmingham, we all know to anybody way outside, then the first thing that comes to mind is is, are the the issues of race in the 60s and all of those kinds of things. And we live in a city where there's literally a mountain that divides one side from the other and that the way that it's just set up is one of division and not of, of unification. And as we said that this, in a way, when we look at this line, that this gospel is for all the peoples and places of Birmingham, that means that God is king here in every single corner. He is king on that side of the mountain, and he's king on this side of the mountain. He's king in that neighborhood, and he's king in that neighborhood. He is king over our politics. He is king over our economics. He is in king over the legal system. There is not one corner even of Birmingham that is totally unfixable by humans. There is not one corner where he has not come in and said, because Jesus is on the throne, all of this is mine. I am the king of this place. This is my kingdom in every part. And so all of the subjects here now in one way or another, either of relenting to his rule or not, have their very identity and they owe their very worship to God as king. And so there is a similar call of where the gospel goes here that actually pays attention not just to ourselves and our own worship, but that goes out. And that it goes as far as everywhere that Christ has declared himself king. And this is not a march 
that is one of human effort. It is not one that is um, often measurable even by our own standards. It is a march that is looking to Jesus and saying that he is king. Something significant has happened because of Jesus that has an impact on our place. So because of that, we have a part of our vision language here that because Christ is king in all places, that we exist to serve and declare his rule for all the peoples and places of Birmingham, not one corner untouched, till it reflects the rule of goodness and justice and mercy that he himself is carrying out and desires for it. So that's his, his, the king, those are his subjects, and then we're moving here to the end, his influence. And that's the question of how this is carried out. And I've already touched on it a little bit, but I want to focus a little bit more on this progression of starting in Jerusalem and going to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is, let's first start with Jerusalem, this idea that Christ's kingship starts with reform of our own worship. And I want to start out talking about the Pharisees. So when Christ comes to Jerusalem, it is a place that is full of, um, where in a religious sense, um, he is often in combat with the Pharisees. He has come to many different types of people, but the characters that show up are those of the Pharisees. And the significant thing to understand about them is they were very moral people. Um, They followed the law like meticulously like more so than you or I would ever even consider doing. But their primary concern was that they themselves would be found to be righteous. And that is when Judgment Day would come, when any political sense of liberation would come, that they would look at themselves and say, I am righteous. I'm not like all of those other people. I'm in the right I'm not part of the problem. I'm clearly part of the solution here that we are right. And Jesus comes in here and first addresses that issue of self-righteousness with himself. And that as he announces the kingdom of God, he moves into Jerusalem to the very center of worship and says that you and your own righteousness is not the center of worship. There is a new king on the throne. I am the promised one who has come, David, the new king, who alone has the ability to make all things new. And he sat down on the throne and said, from now on, this is about me. This is about what I'm going to do. This is about my righteousness. This is not about you and your righteousness. In fact, your own sense of righteousness is the main thing getting in the way of helping you to see who the true king really, really is. And then we see in his death and resurrection is the sign of Christ moving into um, into the sense that even the necessity of his death and in the power of his resurrection, that the task that is at hand is not one that any human righteousness could ever accomplish. But rather than going to despair, there is a new king. He has announced that he has ownership of worship. He has ownership of Jerusalem, and he invites his people to take their eyes off of themselves and to worship him. And so we can think about this in this sense. We can think about all the good things that we are about here as a church um, that we really want, like these are really good things we really want them to be. We want to see in in 
exertion of Christ's rule, um, racial reconciliation to happen. Outside of us, inside of us. We want to see poverty alleviation. We want to see broken systems mended. We want to see good forms of community where people care for each other and people listen to each other. We want to worship in a good and helpful way. All of these good things that we, that we have intended. But there's a change that happens in all of us when the things that we really like and we are proud of, that they become more about us than they become about anybody else. And that these things can become marks of us that we are right. We're not like everybody else. That we do things the right way. We have the new perspective that is able to bring healing in our place that nobody else has. And that even good things so quickly turn into ways of being about us and our own righteousness rather than the gracious and loving rule of Christ in our place. And so Christ replaces those. He doesn't replace those things, but he puts himself on the throne in the place where anything else might define our righteousness and might define our our mission. He starts with reform of our own worship. He puts himself as the only hope and the only focus of our worship. And from that, everything else builds and falls into place. So after that, if that happens... If our worship is not in ourselves, if we don't live and die by like our own righteous ability, there are all kinds of possibilities that then open up. And that is eyes that are off of ourselves and on Jesus are now free to observe our place and they are free to take risks. And they are free to mess up. And that is this, and this just goes with this territory of being witnesses of Christ's rule in all places. It's not a witness to us. And if it's not a witness to us, we can go and we can be creative. We can try things. We can have conversations with people. We can say, I have no idea what to do here. I am clearly not the solution here. But Christ is on the throne in this place. He is on the throne in this sphere that his rule um, is a reality. It is present here. We're able to be honest about ourselves. And in the way of being honest about ourselves, we truly have something valuable to give. And this moves us to the last point here about the ends of the earth. And this vision doesn't stop until it gets to the ends of the earth. And this is what that does for us. It shows us that we are one part of a much bigger kingdom. And that though we live and we breathe and we, um, the city of Birmingham and our own neighborhoods and whatever, but that it's not just about our place, that this is a worldwide movement of where God is at work, that he is making things new on all corners of the earth. And you might say, like, what good does that do with, do with us? What it does is it is when we see the bigness of God's mission about his work, then we are able to look back in our place with a sense of much more creativity than a burden. The task then becomes application of our own place of God's rule, not that we have to measure the ups and downs of our place as a sense of whether he is actually active or not. That the bigness of God's mission gives us a ton of confidence about what he is about. It expands what he can do and what he will do, and it gives us fresh eyes to even look at our own place. And here's what I want us to think about. So when Paul, he's saying, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, 
And what does Paul mean by the ends of the earth at the end of Acts? So he ends his journey in Rome. Like, that's where the book of Acts leaves off. And it kind of always leaves this question, is that where is the gospel going to go at this point? Um, But we don't know. The story stops abruptly at Rome. But we also know that he was raising money to go to Spain. And Spain was even further away than Rome. So there's a view to the ends of the earth there. But if we think about the time period, what's after Spain? There's a big blue wet thing. Um, There's an ocean that nobody knows what is on the other side. I mean, that's like, that is the end. And it's just nothingness. And where are we in this story? Uh, We are way over on the other side of the ocean, where at that time, when this witness was going forth, nobody had any idea of what that, what that would mean for it to go to this side of the earth. Like, we are not the middle of the story. We are the ends of the earth. The fact that the gospel and this little movement at this little time has spread worldwide and come even to us, we are actually beneficiaries of this news. We're not the middle of it, and we're not the ones that have actually started the whole thing. It's not really about us. But what does that do for us? If that is true, if we are the ends of the earth, if the gospel has really gone beyond their wildest dreams, what kind of confidence does that give us to stop, to reflect on our place, to reflect on what God has been up to and his rule through very messed up people other than it doesn't stop with us either. It continues to go. He, this is with Christ on the throne, with Christ being the king. He is a king that is continuously taking new and new and new ground. And that will never stop. And when we look at ourselves, we, quite, quite frankly, are more often part of the problem than part of the solution. But part of the message of grace in this is that even that your grace doesn't end with you, that the power and the mission doesn't end with you either. That we have been invited as a group of messed up people who need healing ourselves, who have been brought into God's mission, that he even uses people like us to continue to see his rule go further and further and further and further. So rather than taking God's grace and stepping back and saying, this is just about me, this is actually an invitation into something that is far bigger and far more exciting. I think this is what this passage is encouraging us to think about, especially as we think about um, who are we called to serve and all the peoples and places of our city. I think it is important for us to ask, where is Christ King? To think about our place, to think about our own anxieties, our own hopelessness, our own sense of pride, and to really reflect on that question, who is Jesus and where is he King? And that it is his kingship that holds everything together. It is his kingship that is going forward. And when this is, this is in place, then the worship of him becomes much more good news and much more natural. So let's stop there and let's pray that the Spirit would help us as we undertake this mission, that he would really move us to a sense of worship above anything else. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have taught us through it. Thank you for the grace that you've given to us and also the mission that you brought us in the middle of. We ask that as our hearts stray so much every day, that you will bring them home, that you will focus our worship on you, that we might be filled up.
that we might take joy that you are our king and that it is you who defines us and you whom we follow. But that through that, that you truly would empower our people and our congregation to go forth and to declare good news where there needs to be good news very badly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.